The Lord be with you. With your spirit. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke. The two disciples recounted what had taken place on the way and how Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. While they were still speaking about this, he stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. But they were startled and terrified and thought they were seeing a ghost. Then he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do questions arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you can see I have. As he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still incredulous for joy and were amazed, he asked them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of baked fish. He took it and ate it in front of them. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and in the prophets and Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are the witnesses of these things. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to And so many of us, I think it's still a common practice when the priest or the deacon stands up to proclaim the gospel and says, the Lord be with you, a reading from the Holy Gospel according to? How many of you just reflexively go, Lord, be on my mind, on my lips, and in my heart. Change how I think, change how I speak and interact. Give me your love so that I might love like you love. That's the prayer. And it's about the Word of God. But to understand the Word of God, you have to understand the risen Christ. Otherwise, you take the Word of God and you reduce it to the words in a book. So here's the simple thing of understanding. The Word of God is Jesus conceived in the womb of Mary, born in Bethlehem. He teaches, he lives his life 33 years. He's arrested, crucified, died, dies, and rises to the right hand of God. This is what God's holy word is. A person, not words in a book. The words in the book, because this is the word of God, in, in another sense, the word of God is Christ, expressed in human language. And so that's why the scriptures spend so much time and Jesus spends so much time talking about the Old Testament. All the ways that he is revealed in the Old Testament. If you read it through the eyes of the life of Jesus Christ, that's how the church reads, the, reads all of the scriptures through Jesus glasses, Jesus' eyes, with the idea that it's scripture and tradition and the authority of the church. Otherwise, our experience 
of the Word of God, because this is the Word of God, it's like a Scrabble book where you shake it up, then you pour it out, and then you just start moving the little dials around to, to get to, well, how many different kinds of religion are there, right? And so that the Word of God is authoritatively witnessed to in the world by the church, who is the risen Christ. Jesus is alive in the world, and he's also in his body at the right hand of God. In short, for Christians, the world is a much weirder place than anybody else imagines. Because God speaks through the world, and you and I are his speech, his words. That's why, if you remember, in the book of Genesis, and all roads lead to Genesis, he makes the human person, male and female, he makes them as his image in the world. It's Christ that fulfills that promise. It's the human being that fails. And so, yes, the Word of God but we are the Word of God in human language, like Scripture is the Word of God in human language. How clearly do we speak? And so the prayer we always start with is, Lord, be on my mind, be on my lips, be in my heart, because conversion is not a one-time event. Every day we get up, and we are being changed and transformed. The role of the Easter sacraments in our life, baptism, confirmation, and Eucharist, and all the other sacraments, but fundamentally those sacraments that lift us up, elevate our lives, and unite them with Christ. So how is that in the Scriptures? So let's turn to Luke, which is our reading for today, and let's just walk through it together. So here's the thing. This is how it starts out. Two disciples run into the where the other disciples are, Cleopas and another man. And they say, we have seen the Lord. And they told him what had happened along the way. If you remember, the beginning of this story is the story when Cleopas and another unnamed disciple walking on the road to Emmaus and a third man joins them, but they don't recognize it's the risen Lord. He asks them, Cleopas asks, have you not heard what's happened in Jerusalem? Now, here's the thing. If you read through the Scriptures, at the foot of the cross is Mary and Mary, the wife of Cleopas. It says Mary's sister Mary and the wife of Cleopas. So Cleopas is Jesus' uncle. Right? So he's walking with his nephew down the road and he doesn't recognize him. Something interesting about the resurrection, isn't it? Because when Jesus just disappears into the church, his face looks like another Christian. This is why the story is being told this way. And you remember all along the way, the stranger, Jesus, is explaining why the Messiah had to die and rise from the dead. Why? Because this is the image of a complete human life. We're all conceived in the womb of our mother. We're all born. We all work hard. We all meet our death. We're baptized into Jesus' death at our baptism. And then we rise from the dead and we go to God. Because the Word of God 
isn't a bunch of moral rules. We do have morality because you have to live like, try to live like God in the world. That's why Christians have such an elevated morality. But God's word is what it means to be a human being in union with God. That's why Jesus has to live this whole life and he has to die. And he has to die a life of shame. Because if you die as a slave, falsely accused, betrayed by everybody, what worse death can you pull off? How can you one-up Jesus on anything? That's why he saves everybody. But you can't say, he didn't share this. I just, he wouldn't understand this. Nonsense. God's love goes into the depths of being a human being and speaks truth. And so what happens in this story? Well, Uncle Cleopas shows up with the other guy. We have seen the Lord on the way to Emmaus. And he run all the way back to town. And then Jesus is there. Paul says Jesus appeared to 500 of his disciples at one time. Wouldn't you want to know what that story is? Because not everything's in the Scriptures. What we need to know for the salvation of our soul is what is told in the Scriptures. So, what does Jesus do? We listen to the story. And he shows them nail marks in his hands and marks in his feet, right? And so the people that wrote that, they've actually seen crucifixions. So they know this is how Jesus is crucified. Why does he do that? Because you have to tell a complete story from conception through death and the resurrection. And so this is his resume. He has the same marks on the last time you saw me on the cross. It's that body that's been raised from the dead. And then... This is the second part of it. He says, you know, honest to Pete, given Good Friday, I haven't eaten since Holy Thursday. Do you have anything to eat? And eats fish. So his body raised from the dead? What other bona fides does he need? Now, why does he have to do that? How do you change how we think? Because all of us, all of us are prone to what's called confirmation bias. I mean, just look out there what we've been going through the last year and how everything gets twisted around what we believe anyway. That's what confirmation bias is. If you don't believe in life after death, the resurrection could not possibly have happened. And that the fact that these men saw the risen Jesus, they must be insane because it can't happen because I don't believe it can happen, so therefore it can't. That's how we get twisted around on seeing reality. And you see it right in this story. Because it says the disciples thought they were seeing a ghost. You know, if you were just a biblical fundamentalist, you'd say, well, if you go back to the story of Samuel, King Saul, after Samuel's death, gets the witch of Endor to call Saul up from the dead. And sure enough, this gray, ghostly figure comes up to talk to Saul, the king. All right. Well, the Jews believed in Sheol. Sheol was a disembodied existence after death. Same thing the Greeks had, which they called Hades, which is not necessarily a place of punishment, though there's a place of punishment in it. But Hades is just the realm of the dead. That's all Hades means. 
But Jesus shows another ghost. You see what I mean? He's blowing apart that category. Others, the Sadducees, did not believe in the resurrection. See, they don't believe in life after death. They believe that because God loves them, they get everything good now. It's like the caste system in India. It's like being a Brahmin. This, is, this pervades the world, the Sadducees. Or as Christians would say, they got their name because they are sad, you see, because they don't believe in life after death. Okay, you can use that. I, we can't use that in a lot of places, but you can use that joke. But it also helps you remember what a Sadducee is. They only believe in the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And they say that the resurrection is not clearly taught there. But Jesus, that's why Jesus says, God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because he's alive. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob are alive to him. But the Sadducees say they're biblical fundamentalists. But Jesus appears, and that's why Sadducees don't exist anymore in Judaism, partly because they were tied to the temple and sacrifice. But you know how the thought continues on? Atheism, that all there is is this life. When materiality is over, we're done. The Pharisees are different. The Pharisees believe in the resurrection of the dead. Jesus disagrees with the Pharisees a lot. He argues with them more than anything, not about the resurrection of the dead, but about what the resurrection of the dead means to live this life. And that's why we get to Christians as the life of grace. When you know this is what life is, it changes how you see the world and what you expect. You can't simply reduce it to 613 precepts taught in the first five books of the Old Testament. That's his basic disagreement with the Pharisees. That's why we don't keep kosher anymore. We don't require circumcision anymore. Christ becomes, and he says it in the Scriptures, the privileged way to communion with God. Then you know the fifth thing, the, fifth, the fourth way of looking, is King Herod. You remember King Herod thinks that Jesus is John the Baptist come back from the dead. He says that in one of the scriptures, the transmigration of souls, reincarnation, more associated with Eastern religions. But the Greeks, like Plato, had this idea that the soul would just exist without a body because this is Greek culture. And so if you look why the resurrection is essential, the salvation is because it says that we're not meant for disembodied life. We're not ghosts. We're meant for a body. There is life after life after death. It isn't just that we survive death, but this world is recreated. That it's a world of grace. That we need to have rules like kids have rules. But saints like Mother Teresa of Calcutta and St. Francis have kind of gone beyond the rule book, haven't they? And the idea that your soul is just born over and over again, the, I would say, 
grim prospect that you have to keep doing this over and over and over again is not Christianity. One and done. And it's why purgatory is such a beautiful, kind teaching that simply builds on what we try to do, how we try to cleanse ourselves from all of those things that distort how we think about life. That's purgatory, where you know your God is and your God loves you. But to experience him as we're meant to experience him, we've got to get over all of this stuff in our life. And it's grace that aids us in that. And so I'd leave you with this. Do you remember how he started out the homily? Lord God, be on my mind, on my lips, and in my heart. What an important prayer. Because as you prepare to listen to the word of God, which is the word of God in human language, we want to understand. And that's why when we have the Old Testament readings and the New Testament readings in the church, they're all about Jesus. They're all about the Son of God, the Word of God, made present in this world. And so it's why we revere the Scriptures, why when the deacons, when they're healthy, come into our church and they bear the book of the Gospels, not every reading's in there, but the four books of the Gospels. Because it's the Gospels that tell us about Christ. But it is as Jesus said, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, which is the Old Testament, the Torah, the Navim, and the Ketuvim, to the Hebrews, the Tanakh. It's the reason we understand Jesus the way we understand them. Because God prepared us to understand the word he speaks into this world by giving us a people for our benefit, the people of the book, lights, and especially the Jews that still live amongst us. Because he promised the Jewish people that there would come a day when all the Gentiles would come and want to learn about God. 